This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Well, the lockdown is in force, and families around the country are trying to figure out how to cope in the next month. How will teenagers and young people whose friends and social contacts are so important manage in isolation? How can parents get this age group to buy into the new rules and toe the line? And what to do about the anxiety that your young person is exhibiting or maybe not really exhibiting? Nathan Wallace is brain researcher, parent and coach, and founder of X Factor Education. He's with us from his home in Christchurch. Nathan, good to talk. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I've got two or three things just from talking to various folk, and, and they're quite, or well, from what I've observed, and they're, and they're quite different. And you just add in whatever, okay. you pick up, or tell me what everyone's asking you as well. Okay. My first, my first reaction was to perhaps older um, teens or young people. And we saw a bit of it, didn't we, when the universities closed? I did anyway. You know, I, I saw some parties happening, and clearly there was a bit of congregating going on when they were leaving, right. when they were leaving halls. There was lots of hugs and stuff, and Man, you completely get it, don't you? You completely get it. Yeah. The question is, over the next day or two, how do you, Mm -hmm. how do they, are they going to click as soon as they get out of that situation and get home? Are they going to click into understanding why we're doing this? And if they're not showing signs of clicking, how do you talk to them about it? Yeah, you're going to have a whole variation of responses, aren't you? Because you've got all different types of teenagers. Some are more mature than others. It is Important, I think, Catherine, like you were suggesting, that uh, this is in a context of a developmental stage where they're really, really drawn to their peers. You know, it's much easier for us oldies to stay at home and watch Netflix for four weeks than it is them. They've got this internal drive to differentiate from their parents and to attach to their peers. So we're going against that. So it is going to be difficult for them. You'll get some kids that are very socially conscious and right on board with it, but adolescence is all about that part of your brain that understands consequences being shut for renovations. So that's why we associate teenagers as being bulletproof. You know, they think that they're bulletproof. And they tend to live in the moment, live in that sort of limbic system brain rather than think about consequences and outcomes. It's just the way their brains, but it's not as simple as that. They think of consequences and outcomes about 10% of the time, but 90% of the time they're focused on emotion, living in the now and feeling the joy. So I think as an overall population, you, you are going to get more of them defying those rules. All of us have to break the habit you know, I've been seeing people and go automatically in for the kiss and have to, you know, it took a few times to break that habit. It's not an issue now because we're in isolation, but I mean in the previous days. Um, so, yeah, they've got, they've got to break that habit, but they've also got to overcome that internal drive. So I wonder if, if it was completely natural in that first, I mean, what an upheaval. Last week you're at university trucking along and you're sort of, you know, you're hearing bits and pieces of stuff. And that's another thing about that age, isn't it? I mean, here mm. we are, we're all glued to our phones updating the latest data graph from The Guardian or something. But, you know, they've yeah. got a lot of other stuff going on. And all of a sudden it went from, hey, we might be starting to teach more offline to, it's, it, you know, you're, you're going home. That's a massive sudden adjustment and their response is probably completely understandable in the circumstances. Yeah. So I think we need to allow them some uh, some room for adjustment, eh? I mean, they don't have fully developed brains. So, I mean, I've got my 21-year-old daughter here and, you know, admittedly she spent a lot of her time in her room on the line, you know, online. And I don't want her to spend four weeks online, but I'm thinking in these first few days when she's cut off from her mates, as long as she's not there 24-7, and I'm encouraging her out, and she's coming out for meals and interacting. I'm giving her a bit more leeway in these first few days. 
I think the other thing before we get into the various ways that anxiety and uncertainty get expressed in young people, I saw another thing and it occurred to me, I, I saw a bunch of, um, a couple of cars actually pull up somewhere I was out walking, it's a common place for people to sort of congregate and it was right, right. after the lockdown was announced and you know people were, they were young guys and they were out sort of having a beer and yarning and then another car came up and there was a fist bump and a hug and my first reaction was, haven't you listened today? And my second reaction was, I think these guys are a bit scared. Yeah. Mm. And probably both of those things. They probably haven't listened today. They're not famous for being in, in tune to the news and what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, and, yeah, this is also the group that commits suicide at the highest rate. You know, So we know that actually underneath all that bravado, there is a lot of fear going on. And what do they do when they're scared? They reach out to each other more so than their parents at this age. And a little bit of denial for a wee while as well, which is, oh, yeah, I'm not doing this. I don't have to do this. It's not going to affect me. That's the other thing. That's the difficult conversation also. And mm-hmm. I actually think many and most will click in pretty quickly. I've just got a gut instinct about that. Feel free to put some stats and research in the way. But yeah. um, I think that's the other thing. They're in their invincibility stage. Stuff doesn't mm-hmm. happen to me. Why do I have to worry about, not going here yep. or not doing this or not hanging out with my good mate. It's not going to happen to me. And you're trying yep. to have a conversation that actually it's not even really about what might happen to you. It's a different right. conversation. You've got to try and get them to see, to understand the bigger picture, eh? to see that it's all about, um, it's, you know, it's about the welfare of the community and you doing your part. What's working on our side is that the, um, the teenage brain is so affected by the environment it's in. You know, there's a clear body of research that shows your kid's behaviour is massively affected by the people they hang out with. You know, just like our parents said, um, we're influenced by our peers. There's a research base to show that now. These kids are not going to be so much hanging out with their peers. They're going to be at home with their parents. And they, and we live 90% of the time in our frontal cortex. So if we can remain calm, um, you know, that good modelling with the kid, have a good conversation with them, it's actually the prime opportunity to exercise their frontal cortex. I said it's there 10% of the time, even when they're in the middle of adolescence, it doesn't disappear because the kid can still talk and, you know, still tell the time and stuff, so it's still there, it's only programmed 10% of the time. Now they're going to be at home with mum and dad, there's a chance to increase that to 20 30%. And that's the part of the brain you're going to need to convince that it's not about them, that their actions are going to impact on other people, so it's about everyone acting as one. So that's one possible situation. The other is the complete inverse and probably actually more common, which is total COVID overload. And I was talking the other day to a fantastic flat of students in Dunedin who are inundated now. The first thing they said was, look, we're stuck at home. Let's see what we can do to help some you know, elderly people deliver some groceries. They got as flash as saying, let's do this, um, do the online transactions. So good faith, you know, we'll go and buy your groceries and you pay us online. All brilliant stuff. But I did yeah. notice one of them saying... You know, we can talk about is COVID. That's and sort of laughing about it, but saying that's all we're talking about is COVID. So we thought we might as well do something. What do you right. do with your COVID overload, teenager? I think you've got to put some boundaries for them. If the kid's getting anxious and their, you know, their mental health is suffering, they're probably not putting in good boundaries for themselves. They're probably online overloading on information about the virus. So you as the parent need to put in some boundaries. You need to have some device free time. I think during all of us should. You know, the research between kids that are on and off um, devices all day and then kids who are on and off devices all day but also have a two-hour window where they're not allowed a device. So kids that come from a home where there's a two hours of device-free time, that actually takes them out of the risk group of kids of anxiety and depression. 
you know, statistically it takes them out of that risk group. They just need two hours free time without devices. So I think parents need to put that boundary in. If the kid's getting anxious, then, you know, that's our job as parents, to put in a boundary if he's not able to put one in himself. Then there is the actual anxiety, and you've used that word anxious. There's the level of anxiety that everyone is feeling, which is the uncertainty yep. of what's going on here, and then there's where it's really becoming something you worry about. And it may not even be necessarily with... Um, a child who, who's prone toward anxiety, and certainly if it is, it might be more acute than normal. How do you yeah, talk? Ab- how do you talk about COVID mm-hmm. without talking about it? I mean, and, and at the moment, it's true. There's for the next wee while anyway. Most people are talking yeah. about it a lot. So how do you do it with an with an anxious teen? Yeah, with an anxious teen, there's this thing called social referencing where they pick up their how they're going to feel about something based on how their parents model that. So heaps of it is in just making sure that we don't freak out in front of them, that we um, model being resilient because resilient means that you talk about taking action. It's like the brain just chooses between two pathways, panic or take action. So if you want to model resilience, you've got to model the taking action part, not the resilience part. In a practical sense, that just means saying um, you acknowledge the emotion, like, yep, this is quite a scary time. I think a lot of people are probably feeling very anxious. And anything new to the brain arouses a bit of anxiety. So you acknowledge and validate that emotion, but then you model resilience by talking about the action that we're taking and how positive that is. So, yep, this is a scary time. We don't really know what's happening. Everybody's a little bit anxious. But I'm really proud of how New Zealand's responded as a nation. We've kind of been world-leading in our response. And all the New, Ze- all New Zealanders seem to be really pulling together and making this work. The stuff I'm seeing on Facebook is not lots of people talking about defying it, but everybody encouraging everybody to follow the rules. So modelling resilience is about, it's not being airy-fairy and not acknowledging the, this fear, but about giving your language to the part that is action that we're taking, the empowering part. And there is plenty of it. And um, you've got to have your stock ready at your fingertips for when when those conversations have. The yes, but moments. Yes, but look what's happening here. Yes, but look what these people are doing. Um, Just be careful that you don't go too quickly to the but because kids live in such an emotion. really should do uh, twice as much of the emotional validation as you do of the you know, um, the the positive stuff. So if I'm going to say, oh, yeah, but New Zealand's responded really well, we're world leading, and I'm going to talk for 30 seconds about how well New Zealand did, um, I should have spoken before that for 60 seconds just talking about that emotion and what anxiety feels like and it's okay to feel that and that other people are feeling that. Just the way their brains are wired, you need to do twice as much emotional validation as you do advice giving, whereas on automatic pilot, we tend to go the other way around. We tend to do, go do that yes but, and That's- then our but goes for a long time and the yes which was our validation was very very short so we need to make sure that the validation is longer than yes. That's probably the best thing you're going to say today and it's a constant reminder isn't it? First validate how they're feeling and give it plenty of time to validate how they're feeling, accept how they're feeling and then when you're trying to redirect to something positive it comes after. So wise. It means they will listen to you because it really is that old thing that our grandparents said, children do as you do, not as you say. So if you want them to listen to you, then you have to model listening to them because, you know, um, and, and 90% of their world's view is emotion. So if you don't speak to that emotion really, really clearly, they don't feel listened to. If they don't feel listened to, they're not likely to listen to you. 
Just an email here that I think probably we've largely addressed. For teens and young adults that are struggling with anxiety and or don't have strong social networks, isolation could be a strong breeding ground for increased risks or rates of depression and suicide, especially as we already have high rates among our young folk. What suggestions do you have for parents to connect with their teens when maybe that's not the parent's forte? It seems parents working on their own and ability to connect at this time will be integral to holding their children through this challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question, isn't it? Because um, how do you connect if you're not necessarily that good at knowing how to connect? I think the real key to that is it's all right, your child knows how to do it. Um, it's called uh, you know child-directed learning. What you do is you set aside a predictable time every day where you say to the child, okay, I'm going to be available to you at that time and we can do whatever you want. You know, short of hurting me, um, that time is going to be completely available to you. If you want us to play PlayStation, we'll play PlayStation. We'll do whatever you want. Most of it is the predictability of knowing that it's at four o'clock every day for half an hour, dad's going to make himself available to me. Then if dad doesn't feel like he knows how to connect, most of the work's been done just by dad turning up at four o'clock and making himself available, not having his cell phone with him, not trying to multitask, not trying to direct what he thinks that we should do, just going, okay, mate, here's the half hour. I'm yours for a half hour. Um, that sense of control for kids gives them, and that sense of autonomy, um, massively serves to calm their brainstem. It massively serves to make them feel connected to the parent. Because most of the time the child's experience of their parent is to be corrected, um, to be told what you know, to be someone that's got authority over you. And it's a very one-way type of conversation. To enhance the quality of your communication, have a break from that and have a half hour on a regular, predictable basis where you just make yourself available to the child and they sort of take on the parent role. Routine is obviously out of whack right now. Um, Is there a value in trying to establish and keep to some kind of routine with with your team? Could you speak to it? Absolutely. And it's remembering that, you know, it's really hard to give one size fits all for teens. eh? There's a huge variety. So you're going to have some teens that are really focused on routine and they're just about going to want to, you know, uh, replicate their school day and be getting up at the same time and, you know, doing their homework study. And then there's the other end of the spectrum as well. But for all of those people, definitely routine is important. We just talked about how important predictability is to the brain. So that regular routine is going to give them that sense of stability. Routine is a rhythm, though, not not a clock. You know, like it doesn't mean that they have to continue getting up at 7.30 and they have to continue doing everything at the same time, but they need to do things at a regular time. So you might decide that actually your teen needs more sleep. Lots of brain development happens um, during sleep. So it might not be that the care that he's getting up at 7.30 now and going to bed at 10, you might um, let him sleep until 9. But I wouldn't let him sleep till, you know, 12 and be staying up till 3 in the morning and getting the rhythm all out. It has to be routine and regular. So no. if he's going to... Nine every morning, but still maintain a regular bedtime, still maintain regular food times, because it does really help. Nathan, fabulous. Come back and talk again soon, will you, please? Cheers, Catherine. Take care. Nathan Wallace. He is brain researcher, parenting coach, and founder of X Factor Education.